Saturday Morning Coffee House every Saturday morning from 6 until 10, only on your community radio station, WERU-FM. It's a full menu of great folk music made only with the very finest of ingredients. Support for WERU comes from Inner Tapestry, Maine's holistic journal celebrating and supporting life, featuring alternative health and natural living articles, calendar listings, and a directory of resources available at health food stores and alternative health centers, 799-7995 or innertapestry.org. Support for WERU also comes from Quantum Insulators LLC in Belfast, serving Midcoast Maine as licensed dealers of the icing insulation foam products, including renewable and recyclable insulation content. More information at 1-866-578-WARM or www.quantuminsulators.com. It's coming up on 10 o'clock and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill and streaming online everywhere at weru.org. Common Ground Radio with your hosts from Mafka is up next. Good morning, and welcome to Common Ground, an hour-long discussion of food and local agriculture here in the state of Maine, hosted by the Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association. And my name is Cheryl Wixon, and I am Mofka's Organic Marketing Consultant. I'm joined in the studio this morning by Russell Libby, our Executive Director. Good morning. Good morning, Russell, and Evie Smith. Uh, one of our guests from Penobscot East Research Center. And shortly we'll be joined by uh, Glenn Libby from the Port Clyde Fresh Catch. And in case you hadn't guessed by our guest today, we're going to be talking about community-supported fish, one of the resources that are near and dear both to my heart and to my palate. <laughs> so, but before we uh, have a moment to chat a little bit with our guests, uh, we thought we'd bring you up to speed with what's been going around as far as the local food and agricultural scene is around the state. And um, I know probably some of you think it's really hard to be thinking about growing food right now with, I don't know, how many 40-something inches or 42 inches of snow on the ground. But (laughs) believe it or not, this will go away. This too shall pass. And um, I don't know about you, Russell, but I spend my time looking through seed catalogs, and that keeps it. <laughs> I just reached into my bag and ran into one instead of the report I was looking for. <laughs> but, um, you know, first, uh, Melissa sends her best, but uh, she decided she could take a, a day off today because she and her husband, Rocky, had a baby boy last Friday, Maximus. So uh, I saw a picture, and I'm a little jealous. Max already has more hair than I do. and. Uh, <laughs> I think it's going to keep going in that direction for a long time. Um, Cheryl, you and I were both at the Farmer's Market Convention um, last Friday, Saturday in Belfast, and we talked about it on last month's show, but there was a really big turnout of people who were trying to figure out how to make farmer's markets a more essential part of what's going on. Exactly. Actually, it was a very exciting convention, and I have to give, uh, we were one of the the, uh, co-hosts, and I have to give kudos to the uh, Downey's Business Association because they pulled together a great group. 
Uh, lots of conversations going on about how to make farmers markets more effective around the state, uh, ways in which to govern them, you know, th that type of thing. But a really interesting concept was uh, winter markets how to develop more winter markets because the local food scene, the customers are more interested in uh, access to uh, locally grown and locally produced food on a more year-round basis. And I think on our website, well, I know on our website we have a listing, but I think we're up to 20 winter markets now. One just opened uh, downtown Portland a few weeks ago. Uh, so uh, you know, wherever you go around the state, you can you can kind of plug in and get that winter, winter produce. Um, but you know the the wider range of foods. When I stopped in last year to the uh, winter market at Fort Andrus in Brunswick on a Saturday, I counted uh, I think twenty two different vegetables that you could get in mid February, which is a real change from <laughs> where life was uh, a few decades ago. When once you got pota past potatoes, potatoes, squash, and carrots, you were you, you were, were down. pretty lean. <laughs> cabbage, 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 maybe blueberries, <laughs> frozen blueberries, <laughs> but that was it. So yeah, so and I was there uh, both on both days, Friday and Saturday. The fun part for me on uh, Saturday was they uh, had a woman that talked about healthy food hubs. And in some com uh, more metropolitan communities, not necessarily here in the state, uh, when these communities are doing their plannings, they want to have farmers markets within a 10-minute walk from all of their citizens. So some, communi some communities, large metropolitan areas, may have 20 markets in their community. So. Well, a ten-minute walk in this snow would be about five hundred feet, wouldn't it? <laughs> it's, it's pretty, uh, pretty marginal. Um, a couple other things that are going on. Uh, Andrew Marshall is not with us today because he's out in the woods. We're doing our annual uh, harvest at the Common Ground Education Center, and uh, so our low-impact forestry is out there with draft horses and forwarders and small skidders and um, busy tackling another ten-acre block of woods and. Um, the lumber we use at the fairgrounds for building projects, and the rest goes into the into the pulp market. But that group is doing a really amazing job of sorting out um, what does it cost you to manage your woodlot, and how do you how do you make it um, at least break even when you're catching up on a woodlot that hasn't been managed for a long time. So, if that's something you're interested in, plug into our low impact forestry committee's work. Um, they're usually in the Mafka newspaper, also on our website mafka.org. Uh, and I think the other thing that might be interesting to people is uh, last month we released a report on the economic impact of Maine's organic farming sector. That report can be found uh, through the front page of the MAFCA website, mafka.org. But essentially, um, Jed Beach, who did the study, found that we have about $36 million of farm-level sales, and it translates into $90 million plus of economic impact. And almost 40,000 acres of land are being managed organically across the state now, which is a huge jump over the last 20 years. A huge jump and very exciting, very exciting for those of us that enjoy local food. So a couple other things that I know that are coming up uh, uh, in Unity at the Common Ground Education Center. On February 15th in the afternoon from 1 to 4, we will be hosting a farm food safety workshop. Uh, this workshop is designed primarily for farmers that are interested in developing a farm food safety plan for their farm and to understand how the new legislation could impact upon their farm and their markets. 
information about this workshop and sign-up information is available, again, on our website, www.mofka.org. Uh, and I, in addition to that, in March, uh, we'll, I'll be hosting uh, a kitchen licensing workshop up in Aroostook County, and then in April, another kitchen licensing workshop in Unity. If you have a family recipe or some secret sauce that you think you customers would dearly love, then you should be attending this workshop. It's all about how to get your kitchen license so you can produce more value-added food. It's a great way to increase the revenue stream on your farm. So. And I guess the other piece of news um, for everyone, and then we'll jump into the show, was um, yesterday the Legislature's Agriculture Committee held a hearing for um, Agriculture Commissioner nominee Walt Whitcomb, who's a dairy farmer from Waldo. Uh, and in his opening remarks, he was very clear that um, organic agriculture is a big part of Maine's food future. So I think that's encouraging. We're a big part of the conversation now, and it's thanks to all of you who are out there listening. So. Oh, great. Yes. Thank you very much, Russell, for bringing us up. So now uh, let's just turn to the topic that we have chosen for our discussion today, which is community-supported fish. And uh, community-supported fish is really sort of based on the model of community-supported agriculture. And we have uh, two organizations uh, represented with us today, uh, one being the Port Clyde Fresh Catch by Glenn Libby, who will be joining us by telephone, and Penobscot East Research Center. And we have um, Evie Smith, who's joining us now. So um, uh, is Glenn on the line? I'm right here. Well, good morning, honey. I'm surprised you aren't out fishing. <laughs> well, I had too many other things to Yeah, well, <laughs> I feel complimented that you decided to join us. So uh, can you just give us a, 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 real, a little bit of a recap about uh, Port Clyde Fresh Catch and what you folks do over there? Yeah, we, we started at back when the oil prices spiked, and uh, we didn't have any control over what we were getting for our fish, and it was killing us. So we decided we need to market and we needed to market and brand our catch. And uh, one of the quickest and simplest ways was to just bring whole fish directly to consumers, and the CSF model seemed to be the best way to do it to start out. And uh, that's kind of where it all started. I think it was in 2007. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, so when you say you were actually bringing whole fish to customers, uh, what what type of uh, product and, and how did these customers receive this fish? Well, that was interesting because we started it with whole shrimp, and uh, that went fairly well, and people said, you'll never be able to give people whole fish. They won't know what to do with it, and mm-hmm. that just exploded. <laughs> and uh, since then, we've moved into processing our catch, value-added, like you were talking about. Mm-hmm. And that's really increased our market beyond the CSO. Okay, so are you, you're still doing the uh, community-supported shrimp and community-supported fish, is that correct? Yes, we are. We don't do, we're not doing whole fish or whole shrimp anymore. The stuff is all uh, processed here right in Port Clyde mm-hmm. and uh, packaged, and they, <laughs> they get it in a lot more user-friendly form now, and the fish are all filleted. So so when a customer buys a share from you, uh, how long, do, what, what do they pay for a, a typical share, and what do they get, and how long does the, does the uh, share last? Um, 
It depends on the season. The shrimp, I think we went eight or nine weeks mm -hmm. uh, because of the length of the shrimp season, the availability of the shrimp. And uh, the fish goes longer. I think it was 12 or 14 weeks in the summertime because that's a lot longer season when the fish are readily available. And uh, the shares, we started out doing it based on poundage, but in order to be efficient and not lose money, we decided to go with a uh, set price and that because the price can fluctuate, not so much with shrimp, but with fish. Mm -hmm. And as the price changes weekly based on whatever the market's doing, we just do a certain dollar value. And that's what they get in a, you know, for fillets and different fish are worth different prices. So if it's flounders, it's one price. If it's redfish, it's another price. Codfish, it's another price. And the weight varies that they get each week depending on what the price is. And tell me a little bit about your customer base. I This would be your fourth year doing this now if you guys both started in 2007, right? Yeah. Uh, we've actually, we're doing, the base of it is in Maine. Mm -hmm. um, you know, most of it's local. But we've also started working with other CSAs and some of them out of state where we'll ship down bi-weekly We'll ship down a box, and the shares will go out with the CSA shares. And that's working out really well. It's allowed us to expand it quite a bit. Oh, that's really an interesting concept. So, in other words, when, if I were to buy a winter CSA, then I could conceivably be getting fish with that. Well, that's kind of a fun thing, vegetables and fish at the same time. So, yes, if, if, uh, if a CSA is working with us, you certainly can. Oh, perfect. So, Oh, great. Well, Glenn, you stay right on there because we'll be talking with you and asking some other questions. Sure. Um, Evie, let's uh, talk a little bit about Penobscot East uh, Research Center. Now, first of all, I, I have to let you folks know that this uh, organization <laughs> is down in my hometown, so I'm, I'm quite partial to it. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, Well, Penobscot East Resource Center started our first CSF um, in the winter of 2008-2009, and it was also a shrimp CSF. And the, the reason that we initially started the CSF was in line with poor Clyde's reasoning, um, we wanted to provide fishermen with an equitable winter income. Um, so during that season, the shrimp price dropped to record lows, and we were looking around and trying to find a way to support these winter fishermen and decided to set up a CSF locally. And from that, uh, we started pulling together customers, and we had 115 customers our first year. And at the time, we are just offering a whole shrimp, which, as Glenn pointed out, is kind of a tricky product because you have to teach the customers how to process the product themselves and work through that. Um, but we actually have found that our customers really enjoy receiving the whole shrimp, and they end up making shrimp stock with the shells and using the entire product, which is great. Um, so our first two years, we actually sourced from two harbors. We're working with seven fishermen, um, some in Stonington and some in Southwest Harbor. And we were working with two different drivers as well, distributors, and had four distribution points. So we were distributing in MDI, Ellsworth, Blue Hill, and Stonington. And this initial model that we established the first year has been replicated for the next two. So we're now in our third year of the CSF, and this is our first year offering shrimp meat, which has been a fun experiment. We've been learning a lot from that, which has been great. And learning about the the 
benefits of value added, but also some of the struggles of working with local processors and finding the complexities in that, which has been great. But we are working with a local processor in Stonington um, that just opened its door. So it's great to be able to support that and have them be a part of this project. So you started out with 115 customers. 115 customers the first year, which was great. And we were connecting actually with um, the Cranberry Isles. They had uh, a buyer's club. So we were sourcing directly to them, which was an exciting thing. And then um, since then, we've been really focusing on our initial target areas and really trying to grow in Ellsworth and just connecting to our local markets. So at the moment, we have 90 customers, um, which we're happy with. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, well, this hasn't exactly been the year to be getting your boats out to be going fishing either. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, we've had a we've had a lot of storms this year, and <laughs> I actually all my customers are on hold right now to figure out what's going to happen with tomorrow's weather to make sure that we can get the deliveries out. And it's always a trick working with with the weather and the fishermen and the processors and the customers. But we've been lucky so far. Knock on wood for the season. So, how about you, Glenn? What what uh, do you, I know? You folks do uh, all your product now is processed, and when it gets to folks. But did you initially have a problem as far as, you know, selling some selling shares, but then having the uh, capability to get out and actually meet the demand for the customers? Yeah, we did. There was times when it was just too bad to get out. Uh, one of the things we did early on, we started it in December, and the weather is you have to go <laughs> further to get to the shrimp, and we had a lot of missed deliveries. But uh, as the shrimp move in, it's a pretty steady supply. And our backup plan now, uh, we've got a lot of stuff frozen in one-pound packages, and we can use that so we haven't missed any deliveries. And the same thing happened with fish in the summertime when we first started. Sometimes we didn't have it, but we usually have it all the time now. And that's primarily because you folks are actually doing the, the processing and then packaging it so that if you can't get the fresh product right away, then it's available in a frozen state. Yeah, that's right. Right. Now, tell me a little bit about how you, you know, and I'm interested, and I think all of us are, how the customers have received this, this, uh, the fact that, well, gee, maybe we can't get it this week, and, you know, I was planning on getting my shrimp or I was getting my fish this week. So what, what does that do as far as, as the customers are concerned? Have they been supportive or...? Most of them are, a lot of the comments are like, boy, I'm glad you guys weren't out there. The weather was terrible. (laughs) Well, that's good. They appreciate that. I'm really disappointed because I didn't get my share. So that's both ends of the spectrum and everything in between. So we've tried to plan the seasons so that that didn't happen because it it is fishing. So you don't know. But... uh, We've been able to smooth out a lot of those bumps. And one thing I neglected to mention, one of the other venues we're using this year, we've partnered with a lot of the local uh, co-op stores mm-hmm. over quite a range. we got some all up and down the area here from Orono to Freeport, I think. And uh, they're taking the shares in and uh, handing them out. For the people, so we send them to them, and then they hand them out, and it brings more business into the store. And the other thing that's happening is they're carrying a lot more of our stuff, and I think it's impacted the CSF a little bit. We're not getting quite as many shrimp shares as we have, but I think people are just going in and buying it at their convenience because that uh, we are selling a lot more than we did just exclusively through the CSF. So I think that's what's happening. 
Yeah, Glenn, Glenn, you guys are part of a co-op, right? So how many how many fishermen are part of your project? There's 10 right now. We're looking to expand it to more of the area fishermen that we've been buying either scallops or lobsters or crabs or things like that from. And when you were starting to do the branding, are you are you starting to get some recognition, people looking for the Port Clyde brand in the market or having yeah. the... the the Penobscot East brand, are you are you also doing stores? Um? We, Penobscot East is not doing stores at the moment. Um, we are really riding this fine line trying to make sure that we don't turn into a seafood dealer because that's not really the organization's mission. We're a nonprofit that's working to secure a future for the fishing communities of eastern Maine. And the CSF is just one component of that. Um, so we're really trying to connect the fishermen and the consumer directly and sort of educate each other about one another's needs and and sort of support the fisheries that way instead of becoming an actual dealer. So it's a little bit of a, of a tricky thing for us because a lot of people do assume that we are a dealer because they are buying a product from us. Um, but we are working really hard to make it clear that we're here to promote something as opposed to sell something. So in the evolution mm-hmm. of bringing back... Uh, a product so that the main consumer can have it. You know, I would. It would seem to me like the Port Clyde Fresh Catch folks are at, at a different level. Absolutely, than you folks. absolutely. Yeah, um, yeah. Port Clyde has done an incredible job, and Glenn, kudos to your organization, um, in in really bringing back all levels of the infrastructure. Um, they've worked really hard to connect fishermen and consumers, and also put together branding and processing and distribution, which is something that we, we haven't jumped onto at the same level. And But that's that doesn't mean that we couldn't grow into that, right? No, absolutely. And Penobscot East actually at the moment is trying to establish, you know, what is our role moving forward in terms of local foods in general? Uh, we've been working a lot with farmers and fishermen to connect them at round tables and talk through the common issues that, that we're all facing. Um, and a lot of that does have to do with infrastructure and value added and all of these terms that we hear again and again and again, and trying to think through what can we do in Hancock and Washington counties um, that could bring together these groups in a way mm-hmm. and also pulling consumers. and Yeah, I, I, mean, that, I think that's really important. Uh, you know, I'm part of the Eat Local Foods Coalition and that By Landed By Sea project that we were working on over the past couple of years. Um, and Penobscot East and Port Clyde and every you know all the coastal communities have been really good. But you know, when we think about it, we're talking about the Gulf of Maine ecosystem, and it's tremendously impacted by what happens upstream. Absolutely, you know, yeah. Well, I know one thing that pulls both our agricultural community together and our fishing t- community together is recipes. <laughs> what do we do with the product once we have it? So, and uh, now, Glenn, you folks have a cookbook, don't you? Yeah, we have a shrimp cookbook right now, and there's been a lot of talk about putting a fish cookbook, a lobster cookbook, and so forth, crabs, mm-hmm. and uh, different things like that. The input for your shrimp cookbook, where did a lot of those recipes come from? They all came from, uh, a big percentage of them came from CSF customers. From your customer base, right? And how about you, Evie? You, I know you folks, every time I get my shrimp share, I get a, another recipe. Yeah, uh, we have a running um, <laughs> constant, constant growth from our customers who are always sending in uh, recipes, which is great. Cheryl actually has sent in a recipe that we distributed to the other customers. Um, I try to give the customers a new recipe each week so that they have something new to do with the product because they end up getting 
around 100 pounds of shrimp by the end of the season, and that can be a daunting thing when it comes down to it. So we want to make sure that they have a lot to do with it. Um, And I also give the customers at the end of each season a packet of recipes so they have hard copies of everything. Yeah. Um, So we, we try to make sure that they have recipes. Well, it sounds to me like you're you're on the way to a cookbook too. So. I know. <laughs> I, we we definitely have a lot to work with, so maybe in the future. Yeah. Well, you're listening to Common Ground, an hour-long discussion on uh, Maine Food and Agriculture hosted by your Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association, and we are here on 89.9 WERU Community Radio, and we're going to be opening up the phone lines so we can take your calls and your questions. That Our guests today are Glenn Libby from Port Clyde Fresh Catch and Evie Smith from Penobscot East Resource Center, and we are speaking about community-supported fish. And the telephone number here, if you'd like to give us a ring, would be 469-0500. Again, 469-0500, and we're talking about community-supported fish with the Maine Organic Farmers. So, so Russell, what's your favorite way to enjoy Maine shrimp? Oh, I'm just coming to it the last few years. <laughs> I, I have to say, I grew up uh, I grew up in Hancock County, and shrimp just wasn't part of what we ate on a day-to-day basis. And uh, so I went to the Fisherman's Forum a few years ago, and they were talking about how to market shrimp and having this conversation. I said, okay, i got to start trying this, but uh, I'm, I'm open. I'm trying it. It's a, it's a <laughs> new experience for me the last three or four years. So yeah, yeah. You're, you're the cook, Cheryl. Yeah, you better well, get the recipes yeah, out right. on the table. Well, you know, what I find interesting is just the comment you did make. You grew yeah. up in Hancock County. You grew up right in the heart of the fishing area, but yet fish wasn't really part of what you ate. It's a access issue. It's a cultural issue. You know, if you grew up, uh, if you grew up in a fishing family, obviously you ate it. But if you didn't grow up in a fishing family, then you know the the connections were pretty slim, and I think still are. And that's really, I think, the big challenge for everybody right now. Yeah, and that's what we continually see with our customers. You know, they're constantly asking me, how do I get access to scallops? How do I get access to mussels and clams and all of these things? Because they want to be eating seasonally, but it's a challenge for access, which is such a funny thing to think about because we are in the heart of the fishing community on the coast of Maine, and yet we can't get the product directly. So it's really talking through these issues and getting a sense of what the needs are in order to allow that to evolve naturally and, and promote it if we can. So that's part of the CSF, but we're also looking into other ways to promote direct seafood sales. Now, I'm, I'm, just, I'm also interested in not only in the, you know, the, the home consumer, okay, mm-hmm. but what about the, um, I don't want to call it institutional, but like schools, hospitals, and things like that. What about the possibility, and, and Glenn, you could ch- chime in on this as far as expanding the market into, into, into those arenas. What about the school systems, for example? Uh, we're already doing it. We've been selling to, uh, <coughs> I guess it's still SAD 40. Mm-hmm. Uh, we just sent an order to Bowdoin College. We've got some going to Colby College. Uh, was actively working to get into more of the colleges and other school districts. So, and we do sell. We have a weekly order to uh, Penobscot Bay Medical Center. 
Oh, great, great. So what about as far as the schools down here, Abby? We've been reaching out to the schools, but at the moment we don't have any major school orders. Um, and I've also been reaching out to College of the Atlantic. I recently mm-hmm. wrapped up my time there, and um, we've talked to Jackson Lab, and we've talked to a number of different organizations. But part of our hitch is uh, our price points. We're trying to figure out how to be closer to the market market value in terms of our um, processed product. So it's tricky for us still to make that happen. Um, but at the moment, we're we're fairly close, and so we've been talking again to those organizations. Mm-hmm. But it's a trick. I know, I know. I do know that um, the uh, Dear Al Stonington schools uh, have had uh, shrimp on the menu before because I put it there. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't mean to say that way, but we have a, a really active uh, wellness uh, team that works within schools, and oftentimes we'll do uh, local menus, mm-hmm. and that's one of the uh, products that we brought on. I... I I love Maine shrimp meat primarily because I think it's a really economical source of protein. And it's delicious. And it's good for you. It absolutely is. I know that my freezer is filled with shrimp. And (laughs) (laughs) I have it, I I feel like, three or four nights a week. It's great. So, uh, Do we have a call? No. no. Uh, Well, if not, we would certainly welcome your phone calls. We are in the studio this morning talking about community-supported shrimp, and you can give us a ring here at 469-0500. You're listening to WERU, your community radio, and we're in the studio this morning talking about community-supported fish and how it goes with community-supported agriculture. Well, I, you know, one of the things that strikes me, and, and Glenn and Evie weigh in on this one, but the the real challenge is that we've been taught that whatever you buy, you should buy the cheapest. And, you know, right now we're competing with um, farm-raised shrimp from um, Southeast Asia, and those price points are really, really low. So, It, it goes back to the economy. You know, you hear news about the economy all the time and unemployment and things like that. So that's the real cost of cheap stuff. And what we're trying to do, we came in, we had the same uh, problems as Penobscot East but with breaking into some of these markets because with a small processing operation, a startup like we have, your cost is going to be a little higher. You can't do tremendous volume. And one of our reasons for doing this was to not get into a place where we caught more than what you could take safely from the ocean. So that's a consideration, too. If you take too much out because you've got such a giant market, you could deplete the resource. So it's it's kind of a balancing act between taking out the right amount and selling it for the proper price. Mm-hmm. And that's where the branding comes in. If you create something that people want and you get the story behind it of why you're doing it, and they accept it, then you are able to get a little bit higher price for it. Yes, you're a sustainable fishery. So I think we have uh, a caller on the line. Could you uh, state your name, please, and where you're calling from? Yes, David from Brooklyn. Oh, good morning, David. What can we do for you? Well, you can help me uh, learn a little bit more about this shrimp. I'm I'm totally on board with the sustainable and the paying more. Uh, I think it's it's proper to pay more, and I'm I'm... Happy to be able to do it, and I almost even can on a monthly basis. Uh, but then I have this problem because I don't have a freezer. <laughs> and um, it's hard to eat that much shrimp right off the bat. And I wonder if you can help me a little bit. Can you tell me anything about salt shrimp, smoked shrimp, dried shrimp, uh, canned shrimp, anything else? 
besides putting it in the freezer that will let me hang on to it until I can put it with my peas in the summertime. <laughs> <laughs> oh, like, you're going to have shrimp and pea wiggle? <laughs> oh, well, David, I want to thank you for your call. And uh, if gonna you don't, up and take, you're going to hang up, and uh, I was gonna, I'll, I'm going to turn this over to Glenn first because he's got more experience in the food processing end. What do you think there, Glenn? Well, we've talked about drying shrimp. We haven't tried it yet. Um, we mainly just do frozen. It's vacuum sealed and frozen. Um, there are canned shrimp products on the market, but that's not something we've gotten into either at this point. But that is worth considering. Um, this probably isn't very helpful, but uh, uh, I don't know of any better way to keep it than freezing it right now, I guess is the bottom line. I I know that there are people smoking shrimp, um, but, and I think there's actually one fairly local, um, maybe up in Sullivan. Um, yeah, Sullivan Habit does smoke shrimp. Yeah, yeah, so that might be a way to get some shrimp protein into your diet, but I I know that we aren't about to start smoking shrimp. <laughs> you know, and um, it, if you're going to – the interesting thing here is that we're talking about building a capacity and building an infrastructure that so that folks can enjoy a product year-round, Okay. And this just highlights the fact that we've got some work to do, right? Now, uh, if you want to enjoy a shrimp product year-round and you don't want to buy a shrimp share, then you could maybe buy the Port Klein Clyde brand in a co-op store or something like that. Because, Glenn, your product is available on a year-round basis. Is that correct? That's right. We're working to build an inventory right now <laughs> and storing it in a local freezer facility. Um, we also work with Crown of Maine a lot, and mm-hmm. they distribute our products. They've got quite a lot of shrimp on hand right now that they deliver to the different stores that they service. So then the same with fish and scallops and you name it. Whatever comes around the lighthouse is what we try to process. <laughs> well, and, and David raises a really good question because he, you know, he's interested in being a bulk customer and putting food by. And you know, here's a place where um, Cheryl... For Mafka and other folks can kind of go back into how do people used to store this stuff because there probably are recipes for canning shrimp uh, and it's just uh, you know, uh, another one of these things that's dropped out of our culture. So we're going to think about that one some more. Yeah, I actually appreciate the call because you know what I'm going to do when I go home this afternoon, don't you? <laughs> I'm going to spend some time. And I think we have another caller on the line. Could you uh, state your name and where you're calling from, please? Yeah, this is Nick from Alderville. Good morning, Nick. How are you? Oh, good. Uh, I was listening to David's call there, and, oh, it must have been 15, 20 years ago, I took some Maine shrimp and shucked it out and brined it in the brine for people that want to try this. To make a brine, the easiest way to do it to know how much salt you should have in the water is when it'll float a potato. Then you get enough salt in the water for the brine. Okay. I'll and then you. put the shrimp in there and let them soak in the brine. Mm-hmm. And then take them out and put them on a screen, uh, something that won't rust. And yep. uh, and and what I did, and and uh, then hang it up oh near the ceiling, close to your wood stove. Okay. And that'll dry the shrimp pretty fast. And so I did that, and then uh, after they were dried, I stuck them in a plastic baggie. Mm-hmm. You know, not closed, but just open in. Uh, threw them in the cupboard, and they kept for a long time. They were still good. 
Now, how did you, how long? All right, you're talking to a chef here. Okay, so I'm writing this down furiously because you'll be seeing this again. How long did you uh, soak it for? I really can't remember, but they're so small mm-hmm. that it, most of the stuff that I've done with brine is for smoking. Yep. But, um, and I can't remember how long I left them in there. Uh, we're not talking uh, weeks or something like that. Oh, though. no, no. You put them in the brine and leave them in the brine. It might have been a couple of hours okay. or something okay. like that. Yep. You know, not a whole long time. Just enough to get salt into them. Yep. Oh, that's a really... And now, when you got all done with them, so you put them in the plastic bag and you didn't close it up, and then you were... How'd you eat them afterwards? What did you, what'd you do with them? Oh, I'd just try them raw. Uh-huh. <laughs> And uh, I might, I can't remember. Maybe I put some in a miso soup, but uh, uh, but I know it worked. It preserved them mm-hmm. for a long time, and it was something else at the same time. Some kind of fish. Oh, you did the same thing too. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, Finn and worked. Hattie. I mean, the main thing is to brine it and then dry it. Yep. That's a, 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 a very, very old method of, of preservation is. And yeah, what you oh, do, yeah. yeah. What you do works. with the, the salt is you tie up the water content so the bacteria can't multiply at an exponential rate. And, well, thank you very much for your call, and I hope David was still on the line, but you, I'm going home and trying this this afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> Good enough. Good luck to everybody. Well, thank you so much for your call, Nick. And, okay. Uh, you're listening to... Uh, Common Ground, hosted by the Maine Organic Farmers and Gardens Association on your community radio, WERU. And we're taking your phone calls in the studio this morning. And, boy, this has been the best show we've had yet. If I can get a new recipe, I love it. Our phone number here in the studio is 469-0500. And we welcome uh, your call to give us a ring and see what we can can talk to you about or what we can do for you on uh, community-supported fish. So do we have another caller? Well, good morning. Yeah, hello. Um, I uh, am a huge fan of uh, fish, seafood uh, of all types, and have uh, in the past eaten just as much as I could uh, for all the obvious reasons. But uh, what has concerned me more recently, I hate to drag the tone of the conversation down, but the uh, oceans are not in their healthiest condition. Uh, I've heard of a number of uh, uh, consumption uh, advisories for fish. I have now started to worry about eating it. I watch how many portions I'll have in the course of the week. When I go to a restaurant, I ask if it's Atlantic or Pacific salmon, uh, because uh, from what I've heard, uh, the Pacific salmon is still uh, toxic-free. Can Could you address uh, the issues of... Uh, toxicity of our seafood, uh, maybe consumption guidelines, uh, efforts to uh, improve uh, the situation. Oh, great. And I'm sorry, but I didn't catch your name and where you were calling from. Uh, Al from Hamden. From Hamden. Okay, great. Well, thanks for your call, Al. And uh, maybe I'll turn this one over to Evie. Okay. Um, Al, well, I, I think it's great to be aware and maybe a bit weary, but I also know that... Um, the Northwest Atlantic Marine Alliance, which is a group based down in Gloucester, um, does a lot of work on the Atlantic coast thinking through what seafood is good and safe to eat and also what seafood is being harvested sustainably. So I'd recommend checking out their guidelines. Um, that could be a good resource for you. And I'd also say that um, 
part of the efforts with CSFs is to promote sustainable fishing. So what we're trying to work through is fishing maybe a little bit less, but making sure that you're making a bit more for the fishermen. So we're paying our guys $1.10 per pound for their shrimp um, with the idea that maybe they won't have to bring in as much. Um, But in terms of toxicity, I mean, wild-caught shrimp is a pretty healthy product to be eating um, when you compare it to what's coming in from aquaculture, from Southeast Asia. it's uh, We're in a pretty good position here along the coast of Maine. Um, but like I said, it's it's good to be aware and it's good to ask those questions. Oh, well, thank you. Glenn, maybe you have something to add to this one. Yeah. Um, the sustainability aspect of it, <clears throat> and uh, you'll see on some of the seafood watch guides certain species that you should stay away from. Some of them that we have are being put back on there as a good choice because of the rebuilding that's going on, because of the uh, work that's done been done over the years by the New England Fisheries Management Council. Some of these stocks are recovering in pretty good shape, like codfish, for example. That's making quite a rebound. There are still some that are in trouble, but uh, they're all on a good trajectory now. Um, as far as toxicity, I think... You were most, I think the gentleman was mostly talking about salmon and things like that. And it says fish that are on the surface, the ones that have more of a oily content or high-fat content, the fish that we catch are on the bottom and the shrimp. It's the ground fish, we call them, just because they're basically on the ground, on the bottom of the ocean. And they have less... I haven't really heard about a lot of toxicity issues with those. They live in a different part of the water column, and I don't think it's a very big issue as far as those are concerned. Yeah, and I think a lot of the toxicity issues trace back to, you know, where are you catching these fish and, or shrimp in this particular case? And, you know, the whole, you know, all the ocean is one ocean, but in terms of overall Gulf of Maine is on the cleaner side of the oceans. Um, so that's a positive we have going for us. And the other is really thinking about um, uh, how far up the food chain these these creatures are. So shrimp are pretty low on the food chain. That means they're not a, an accumulator. They don't live a long lifespan. Again, it, it lowers the amount of toxicity. Um, but it also points to just the importance of all of us thinking about what happens upstream goes downstream, and it all ends up in the ocean. And you know, for a long time, we thought the oceans could just absorb, absorb, absorb whatever there is. And um, you know, intuitively, we know it all is connected. But now we know it's all connected, and it's really important for us to be thinking about the whole. Yeah, that was a great call. I thank you very much. Again, we're in the studio of WERU, and you're listening to Common Ground. We invite you to call in and and, uh, have a conversation with us. Our telephone number here at the studio is 469-0500. Yeah, and uh, so I'd I'd like to just weigh in a little bit about the the importance of the farming-fishery connection here. For a long time, they've been thought of as two different things. And if we're thinking about the food system, fish is a really critical and important part of the, the protein supply um, and it's something that's available in Maine. It's not available in the Midwest. It's part of what we have to offer to the rest of the world. Um, and you know, how do we how do we keep our food dollars here in Maine? It's by buying more Maine seafood, by buying more Maine agricultural products, and figuring out how to put them together. And for some reason, we've had this idea that 
um, you know, let's take lobster, that lobster are something that are really not part of our daily diet. They're something that's supposed to be shipped somewhere else. And yet uh, we buy uh, very expensive meat in from other parts of the, of, the, of the world, not just the other parts of the country. So how do we change that? Well, we change it by thinking about how we can integrate these foods into our diet on a regular basis. Yeah, Russell brings up a really good point, and that's some of the work that we're actually doing at MOFCA is uh, evaluating what we have available to eat here in Maine, and do we have the capacity uh, to feed the state with what we can produce in this in uh, Maine? And actually, we do. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? <laughs> and you know, lobster and shrimp and clams are three very important, and and some of the ground fish are three, uh, four very important components of what we can feed the state of Maine on. So. Yeah, and Evie, what do you think about that? What, what types of things do you think of as, when you come to thinking of Maine and fish? Well, I, I grew up on the coast in Maine, and, and for me, seafood was a staple in my diet. Um, but it was always at home, and I think about our school systems, our public school systems in elementary and middle school and high school, and the food plans don't really tie in a lot of our local foods, and I think that's a huge, huge um, potential. And there's a lot happening in state already with that. And I think that promoting that's a great way to get students and young people eating local and thinking about where their food comes from and engaged in these issues. So I think that's a great spot. Yes. And what about you, Glenn? What, what, uh, give us your thoughts on this. Can you repeat the question, please? Well, we're, we're sort of thinking about how we can make this connection between uh, local food, local agriculture, and having people understand that we actually have a wealth of wonderful fish to eat right here in our own backyard. Yeah, uh, the people that eat it know. <laughs> yeah, we all know, yeah. <laughs> oh, do you think that probably has a lot to do maybe with some of the branding work that you folks have done? That's what it's all about. I mean, we've done a lot of education with school kids uh, from different parts of the country, in fact. They've come to Port Clyde to visit us in the summertime, and uh, we've worked with the Herring Gut Learning Center, which is right next door. I've traveled a lot more places than I ever thought I would <laughs> about this. And, uh, yeah, it, it's important. One of the, And, again, one of the key things is the local economy. I mean, that hits everybody's pocket, and it impacts everybody. And when you buy locally, more of that money stays in your community or in your state. And that's really important, especially today. And uh, it's not just that it's good, that it, you, you're able to create local jobs that way, too. And uh, that's a big deal. Oh, thank you. All right. I need to... Uh, you're listening to Community Radio, and we're talking about community-supported fish, and we would welcome you if you'd like to come call in and join the conversation. Our telephone number here in the studio is 469-0500. Glenn, I was wondering if you could um, talk about the role of the of the Fisherman's Forum, um, which is coming right at us about a month from now, but also uh, you know, what are the what's the job impact of you guys switching from shipping all your stuff whole to starting to do value-added in the community? Um, well, the, the forum issue first, that, that's a pretty good resource for talking about a lot of these innovations. That It's shifted over the years as new things come along, and there's been a lot of emphasis on this marketing. And uh, one of the things that the fishermen always complained about was price, and this is an attempt to attack that, I guess, if you will. Mm -hmm. It's not always as simple as it seems. I mean, you know, it just 
instantly going to pay more for the stuff to the fishermen, but they save money by not transporting it. And now I'm drifting a little from the forum, but uh, they, you know, there's incremental ways where they do get more for their catch. It's by not having to spend money. And there, there has been some seminars and things like that at the forum. And there's also talk about there's going to be a project coming up this year. There, a seminar about innovative fishing gear used in the shrimp fishery, and that's going to be really important going forward. We're actually using some of it voluntarily where we reduce bycatch. We've got that almost down to a zero level now, but uh, things like that. And uh, as far as jobs go, at times to date, we've had 25 people employed, not every week, but sometimes in the summer when we're really busy, um, you know, jobs where there never were any jobs before. So we've created this new uh, source of income for the local people. Oh, that's, and that's been a really good thing. That's, that's probably one of the best benefits. So I think we have a, a call on the line. Could you state your, state your name, please, and where you're calling from? Hi, this is Kate. I'm calling from Belfast. Yeah, good morning, Kate. What good can morning. we do for you? Um, I wasn't certain if you folks have discussed um, on the 27th the CSA, CSF fairs that are happening around the state. So I wanted to bring that into the conversation. I'm coordinating the one here in Belfast, which will take place at the UU Church on uh, Miller Street. And that's um, Sunday, February 27th, 1 to 3 p.m. Um, opportunity for folks to come and meet their area CSA or community-supported agriculture farmers, as well as, in some sites, uh, community-supported fisheries. Um, we're hoping to have... Port Clyde Fresh Catch here in Belfast. I've invited them. Well, thank you very much. Now, we hadn't talked about that, but that was next. That was one of the things next on the program. I figured. Yeah. <laughs> no, but um, really, thank you for bringing that to our, to our attention. So. Here's your segue. I'm going to get... Out here. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much. And uh, that brings up, this is going to be happening across the state on February 27th at different areas. You can find out information about this on our website, www.mofka.org. And this is, what, the fourth year we've done this now, Russell? Yes. And, and what's really exciting is just the increased interest and attention. So when when that project started a few years ago, we were running about um, 50 to 60 CSA farms across the state, and the fisheries were just starting up. And uh, I think our last count is 150 CSA farms. And, you know, I, you know, we can count them as two CSFs, but they're really multiple because they're multiple locations. So um, it's really exciting to see how many people are just saying, okay, I, I want this direct connection, and, and uh, that idea is really spreading quickly. Yeah. You know, one of the most exciting parts for me uh, as a consumer is just what you mentioned, Russell, that direct connection that you get with a community-supported fish or community-supported agriculture. I personally know the person that either <laughs> grows my food or fishes for my food, and I know that the money I'm spending is going right back to those people. <laughs> oh, I thought you were going to say you knew the name of the shrimp that you were eating. <laughs> No, I haven't named every single one, so... <laughs> She's naming them fast. Yeah, right. Well, no. just to speak to that yeah. quickly, that's um, that's something that we work really hard with, and I know that um, Glenn's been talking a lot about uh, marketing and, and 
sort of promoting a brand. And what we do is we promote the fishermen. So we provide the customers with bios about the fishermen so they get to know them on that personal level. Um, and Stonington's a small community to begin with, so a lot of the people know who's going out um, anyways. But we're really trying to promote that and say, you know, this is the person that brought it in. And it also helps when the weather's bad because they feel connected to that fisherman in a different level. And they feel like, well, I don't want them going out because I care about that person. So that's a that's a great benefit. Yeah, it's it really is. This is a, a wonderful time to be part of Maine Food and Agriculture. <laughs> so I think we have another call on the line. Good morning. Could you state your name, please, and where you're calling from? Yeah, it's David. Once again, I, I just want to be quick here. Uh, and uh, Kate had reminded me that there there is outreach work to do. Uh, and I wanted to mention in that line that uh, I know this is uh, CSF specifically, but as far as it sort of seems like the, the CSF is in, in a little bit piggybacking on the back of CSA, which is wonderful. And I wanted to mention that in Belfast, in uh, Blue Hill, on February the 19th, which is a Saturday, uh, a few Saturdays away, uh, we're going to be showing a film called The Vanishing Soil, uh, which is a 50-minute documentary about uh, biodynamic agriculture, which features a guy, Troger Grill, who was the, actually the inventor of CSA uh, in America. He sort of brought the whole notion over here. Uh, quite a while ago, and uh, it's a film about him and his his farm, uh, and uh, I think it should be a, a pretty interesting uh, chance to get some historical perspective on the whole thing, if people might be interested. Uh, February 19th, 5 to 8 at the Blue Hill Library. Oh, great, David. Thanks for calling in sure. and, and giving us a heads up on that. So okay. you're listening to your community radio, WERU, and... This morning, we're in the studio with the Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association talking about community-supported fish. And we do have a time for a couple more phone calls if you'd like to give us a ring. The telephone number here in the studio is 469-0500. And uh, we've been speaking with uh, uh, Glenn Libby from uh, Port Clyde Fresh Catch and Evie Smith from Penobscot East Resource Center talking about some of the work they've been doing with community-supported fish and and how you can be enjoying more Maine, Maine fish and Maine products. And I think we have another caller on the line. Could you state your name and where you're calling from, please? My name is Melanie, and I'm calling from Owl's Head. But I am here temporarily from Colorado, and um, in Colorado I've worked on issues of local food. Of course, not the seafood, which is fascinating to me as a visitor here. But one of the things uh, that has come up in the discussion of localization, especially for um, some of the ranchers and farmers who traditionally produce for even export-scale-type uh, production, is the concern about uh, relocalization of the, their product, whether it is cattle or a crop they've raised, and the economies associated with shifting that to the local level as opposed to the what they've become used to with the export. Has there been any um, attention paid to that, and specifically in relation to the community-supported fisheries? Well, thanks for your call, Melanie. Russell, I, you said you wanted to take a stab at this a little bit. Well... You know, one of the one of the questions is how far you push this before you start to change systems. So right now on the farm side of it all, the direct from farmer to consumer part is running 
really about two to three percent of the food system is is in that mode, and that means ninety seven ninety eight percent of it isn't still in the runs through the traditional marketing outlets. I don't think we can really assess the real impact of people changing until we can get beyond that two to three percent and get up to more like ten to twenty percent and then it starts to look really differently. Um, I was lucky I had a conversation with uh, a farmer from France a few months ago. And he was talking about the city of Marseille organizing so that uh, every 50 households has a farmer. So they have a very strong labor union, trade union movement there. And they're actually organizing from the, the trade unions just area by area out into, the, out into the countryside. And essentially, you're getting to the point where, our, where there are several farmers um, connected with each block in the city. So I, I think there's some really interesting models out there. The one that really jumps for me is the um, is the where's our money going? Because right now we have four billion dollars being spent on food, and most of that flows not just out of the out of the state of Maine, but it flows all around the all around the world because so much of our food is imported. And you know, it's really I think the CSFs, the CSAs, and all the other innovations that are happening out there are really about just flipping that whole system. So well, great. That's a that's a good good point. Do you think that we're at a point where you could even put any number like that as far as the fisheries are concerned? How about you, Glenn? Any idea about the direct marketing piece to as to the consumer and what percentage that might be? Well, it's a, it's really important to get more of the locally caught fish on local tables. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as our customers are concerned, they're thrilled that they're able to get it now because we went through a period of depletion where they couldn't get it. I mean, we're still sort of in it, and uh, we've had a lot of positive feedback. It's just getting the word out about it that, it, yeah, this is available, yeah, it's local, and you can get it. Uh, finding more venues around the state where you can distribute it is important. Um, just keeping more of it home, I guess, for all the reasons we've talked about is, a, is one of the goals that we have. Oh, great. Well, um, I think that's something that we as consumers can all commit to, is to try and seek out more local products and uh, more direct connections with our local farming and fishing community. What, and what about, Evie, did you want to chime in a little bit on this? Well, just speaking for Penobscot East and the fishermen that we work with, uh, it's a very, very small portion of their actual catch that's moving through the CSF, but they view it as worthwhile because they recognize that community support is invaluable when it comes down to it. So they work very hard to satisfy these local customers because they recognize that, all right, most of the catch might be going out of state, but the stuff that stays local is what's going to be their advertising and be their support long term. So that's really the way we're approaching the CSF. Yeah. And yeah, just just one last word. There's some really interesting um, work that's been done in places like Minnesota on what happens when your entire food system is based on an export economy. And at that point, um, that whole region actually spends more to buy food in, even though it's one of the richest farming areas in the country, than they get from the value of the stuff they send out. So, you know, there's a there's a lot of feedback loops that are involved in switching our food system around. 
Yeah, well, great. Well, you've been listening to Common Ground, an hour-long discussion on Maine food and local agriculture hosted by the Maine Organic Farmers. And we are here the first Friday of every month. So next month, please join us on March 4th from 10 to 11. And uh, we've been in the studio this morning with uh, Evie Smith from Penobscot East Resource Center and Glenn Libby from Port Clyde Fresh Catch. And I want to thank Thank them very much, and thank Russell for being with us, too. And we've had a great time, and I'm going to go home and try some of that, <laughs> that salted and brine shrimp. So thank you very much. Thank right. you for having us. Yeah, thank you for having me. All right, see you. Support for Common Ground comes from Fields Pond Audubon Center, a green design nature center in